Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss, coming to you from the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger, coming to you from my hometown of Waco, Texas this week. Well, we have got a fun show for you today, just in time for Memorial Day weekend and the kickoff of summer. It's a conversation about camping and outdoor recreation with our former CWP colleague, Tyler McIntosh, along with Judy Brower, who's a, a wildlands attorney with the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. Judy and Tyler are here to break down two reports, one from CWP, one from SUA, about outdoor rec, and talk about how we can balance visitation and protection on our public lands, especially as they are under so much more pressure post-pandemic from more folks discovering they love being outside. But before we get to our chat, let's do the news. Sure. So the Forest Service announced that it is planning to suspend all prescribed or controlled burns for 90 days following the devastation of the Hermit's Peak Fire in New Mexico. That fire has burned down hundreds of homes, ranches, and buildings, as well as forced tens of thousands to evacuate. The fire started as a prescribed burn that got out of control and later merged with the Calf Canyon fire. Prescribed burns are used to thin forests of built-up fuel, restore forest health, and prevent much bigger fires. But this one, which was started by the Forest Service outside of Las Vegas, New Mexico, quickly got out of control thanks to gusting winds. The new combined fire surpassed 300,000 acres in size on Monday, making it the largest wildfire in New Mexico's history. And as of Wednesday, the fire continues to grow. Now, this temporary ban won't have a major impact. It falls during the summer. Most areas of the West are under burn bans anyway. 90% of uh, controlled burns happen outside of the summer months. But obviously, it does concern forest managers and ecologists who point out that prescribed burns are an essential tool to mitigate wildfire risk. Prescribed burns have been used by indigenous people for centuries. Instances of prescribed burns escaping fire lines are in fact extremely rare. So while it's clear the Forest Service does need to do some work improving safety measures around these burns, it's also very important we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater at a time when fire mitigation is becoming even more important across the West. Remember that we are talking about forests that are overgrown because for a century, the Forest Service had a 10 a.m. policy that aimed to put out every fire as soon as it started. That policy ignored the scientific reality that fires are necessary for forest ecosystems. So we are simultaneously trying to fix a 100 years of bad forest management while also dealing with the increased risks caused by climate change. And as we've heard from so many ecologists on this podcast before, the only way out, counterintuitively, is with more fire. Right, I think they call that fighting fire with fire. Um, Well, we've got a few more quick news items before we go to the interviews, so stick with us. First up, remember that guy we talked about last time? Former Interior Secretary David Bernhardt? Well, he's back in the news thanks to yet another scandal. This time for potentially violating the Lobbying Disclosure Act by working for California's Westlands Water District, a former client of his, during the Trump transition after he had deregistered as a federal lobbyist. Unfortunately, the Interior Department Inspector General's office, which investigated the scandal, couldn't find enough evidence to bring charges against Bernhardt. That's in part because Bernhardt refused to speak with investigators. He canceled on them the night before a scheduled interview and refused to participate in the investigation without special conditions. So this investigation really shows a critical gap in the powers that inspectors general have, which is to say 
the lack of subpoena authority. In order to be effective, former officials like David Bernhardt have to be obligated to cooperate with investigations, otherwise they can just dodge responsibility by up and quitting. So there's a deep irony here that Bernhardt spent four years bragging about his ethics compliance, only to clam up as soon as he left. Yeah, I mean, that's suspicious behavior. One more news item for you today. The Bureau of Land Management is currently soliciting feedback on inaccessible public lands. Those are lands that are blocked in by other private property or um, don't have a good right-of-way. Anyways, the agency wants to hear from you about lands that you know of that are hard to reach, and you can go online and submit those comments. Um, We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Our first guest today is Tyler McIntosh, who recently moved on from CWP to take a position at the University of Colorado Boulder. Tyler authored a report for us last year on the increasing popularity of public lands camping. Welcome back to the podcast, Tyler. Hey, it's great to be here, Kate. Our second guest is Judy Brower, a wildlands attorney at the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, which put out a report last fall on the effects of recreation on the Colorado Plateau. Thanks for being here, Judy. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So let's start with the Camping Crunch report that we put out last fall. Tyler, you analyzed publicly available data for 24 million campsite reservations on federal public land between 2014 and 2020 and found that peak season use of reservable public lands campsites during that time period increased by almost 40%. Can you tell us a little bit more about your report and why you decided to do this analysis? Yeah, absolutely. So this report uh, was something that came out of us realizing that there was a huge amount of publicly available information that hadn't had a lot of analysis done on it. Um, This is the data that you as a user create um, every time that you make a reservation on recreation.gov. And um, so we took this information and the end goal here was to make a report that was useful to the people out on the ground, both as managers and as campers and recreationalists. So if you go to the report, um, you can work through a bunch of interactive tabs and maps to check out where the most popular campsite locations are near you. And what was sort of the upshot of your report? If you had to summarize it, what would you say you found and, or what were you most surprised about finding? Maybe those are two different questions. <laughs> when you introduced the report, you pointed out that there's just this absolutely massive increase in camping on public lands. And When we look at that across the entire country, it remains true. And this isn't just in places like our national parks where things have always been popular, but also in places like Forest Service campgrounds, BLM campgrounds. This is across the board a continuing pattern. And Judy, right around the same time Tyler was crunching all of this reservation data showing more people heading out and camping – Sua was doing this, uh, this I guess, report meta-study on the effects of camping and outdoor recreation, especially on the Colorado Plateau. Uh, walk us through both what prompted that, that study and, and what it found. Sure. Um, so we commissioned this report um, to help educate land managers, the public, and ourselves Um, And to begin a conversation about science-based recreation management. And just to clarify that the report is focused on the impacts of human-powered recreation. So 
things like hiking, mountain biking, climbing, canyoneering, backpacking, horseback riding, hunting, fishing, wildlife viewing, all of these things um, that we love to do. And camping is obviously a big part of that, whether it's car camping or, um, you know, backpacking or horsepacking into a place. Um, camping is, is really tied to all of that directly. So, you know, we, we work and recreate in Utah. I'm in Moab, Utah, and exper- really have experienced firsthand the increases that have been happening here and around Utah throughout the Colorado Plateau over the past decade, spurred by state and local advertising, population growth, and social media. And really, all of that was put on steroids during the pandemic over the past two years. So we felt we really needed to understand what the science says about how to manage recreation in a way that is sustainable so that we can begin working with the land management agencies, such as the Bureau of Land Management, to get them thinking about it in this science-backed way. And just to cut to the chase, is we hear a lot of folks saying we are at risk of loving our outdoors to death. Is, is that, in fact... The, the takeaway here? It really is. And what the knowledge, what the, what the collective knowledge of the report shows. So the report is based on recreation ecology, which I actually didn't know is a thing, um, but it's a very well-established study of outdoor recreation activities and their associated ecological impacts and disturbances. It has a more than 60-year history um, with over 1,200 published studies. And really what these studies show, which is in the first paragraph of our report, is that the knowledge collectively suggests that while outdoor recreation visitors on public lands can cause substantial ecological disturbance to natural resources, effective management works to minimize these disturbances and can sustain, sustain both recreation and conservation goals. So what our goal is to, is to work with the land management agencies such as the BLM to um, work together to develop proactive, holistic management strategies that pre- protect the resources that we love while providing for a very diverse um recreation experience for, you know, different, very diverse people who want to get out there on the land. Tyler, you know, one thing from your report that I remember is that you found that campsites near protected lands were becoming really popular. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what that finding means. You know, these are these are BLM lands that are close to protected lands, but they're not protected themselves. So um, what did you tell us more about what you found? Because I can't remember exactly um, all of the details, but I, I remember being really interested in that data point. Yeah. So across the country, um, campsites within national parks are consistently popular and have been across that entire data set that we were looking at. Um, and they actually do appear to increase the occupancy of nearby campgrounds as well. Um, and that's not just national parks. This is also true of all protected areas, such as wilderness areas. Um, So places that are immediately next to those are more popular as well. Um, And I think it's important to note that this does not include dispersed camping at all, um, which, for example, in Utah is very popular near the national parks. 
Um, so this is just the campgrounds that we have good re- reservation data for. Um, and for my own personal experiences over the past decade, I would suspect that those rates of use in dispersed camping areas have increased even faster. Um, so in those areas, especially, this is uh, something that's very difficult to assess and an open management question and challenge. Um, but I think even with these reservable sites that we do have data for, um, there's still a management challenge here, which is that national parks, for example, do receive a fair amount of funding. Um, but these parks are also having an impact on other areas nearby. And those um, land management agencies and offices may not be receiving the same type of financial support for management. Judy, it seems like Moab, where you are, is the perfect microcosm of this. You've got a, a lot of national parks, protected public lands nearby, but Moab itself, surrounded by by BLM lands, open to recreation, open to camping, and uh, an area that has skyrocketed in popularity over the last 15, 20 years. So when you talk about working with managers at BLM and the Forest Service to to minimize these impacts, what does that look like in practice, or what should it look like in practice in in a place like like Moab? Sure, and and I will I will say uh, we uh, we strongly encourage uh, other places to not become the next Moab mm-hmm. because it's really uh, so highly used and and impacted. Um, what it looks like, I think, really remains to be seen. And we sent out SUA and about 24 other organizations when our report came out, sent a letter to the state of Utah, BLM, uh, requesting the development of a, the creation of essentially a committee, a recreation, non a human powered recreation and tourism committee to look at what the impacts are and look at what um, current policies are currently in place and then to develop better policies that will protect the resources while providing diverse recreational opportunities. Um, And it's, you know, it's interesting uh, that um, Tyler's, report really looked at the impacts of camping in national parks, but also mentioning right outside of national parks, you know, in, in, um, in like, I think 2012 or 2013, the state of Utah um, initiated this huge tourism campaign uh, called the Mighty Five, where it, you probably heard about it, and it brought just an extreme amount of people to the national parks, which were completely unprepared for all of that use. And so then the tourism board pivoted to a new message, which is the road to Mighty, which sought to fix the problem in the national parks by telling people to go somewhere else. In- including right? Bears Ears as the state was trying to get rid of it. <laughs> right, exactly. And so and so overwhelming those areas, you know, they, they just don't have the capacity. And so you see a lot of these impacts, you know, as Tyler mentioned, yeah, camp dispersed camping outside of national parks and on BLM lands and Forest Service lands has just increased dramatically. And unfortunately, 
um, it's being done in such a way that it's really impacting the resources that people are just dispersing farther and farther and farther afield into the backcountry, and um, we're we're seeing a lot of of impacts, especially to kind of the cryptobiotic soils. And you know, in the desert here in in the Colorado Plateau, the soils and the cryptobiotic soils are so sensitive that we're seeing a lot of impacts spread out across the land. Real quickly, and then I want to get to Tyler, but walk us through cryptobiotic soils because a lot of folks see a picture of the Utah desert and they see dirt. Okay, but don't actually walk through cryptobiotic soils. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Proverbially, walk us through cryptobiotic soils. Yeah, and I am not by any means an expert on cryptobiotic soils. But they're really cool. They're they're living soils. It, you, they're they. It's a cryptobiotic crust, so it's essentially a living, growing crust over the sand and the soils that keeps them in place, right? And it's it is vital, essential to everything that lives in these desert environments. Um, it is vital to plants, right? It traps nutrients. This cryptobiotic crust traps nutrients and water so that plants can grow. It's vital to the insects. It's vital, you know, and so the plants are vital to wildlife and just, you know, entire ecosystems will collapse if you don't have these soils. They are just key components. And so we have a saying, don't bust the crust. Um, and it breaks my heart Almost every time I go out to see footprints and bike tracks and tire tracks through these soils, which take can take you know a hundred years to grow back, um, and then you get into the whole impact of alien dust, which is the you know when you don't have these soil these crusts over the soils, the dust and the soils blow and they land on the snow and then the snow melts faster. So it's this just broad ranging impact. That we're seeing. Yeah, it's just really great to have Judy here to sort of talk about what she's seeing on the ground in these places, and especially to talk about the impact of that Mighty Five campaign in Utah, um, because th- this is something that we see in the data. Um, and I guess the context for this is that um, in the Western United States, there was an increase of about 47% in camping occupancy over 2014 levels, which was the most of any region in the country. But within the West, Utah had one of the most rapid increases in reservable campsite occupancy with a whopping 77% increase over 2014 levels. So that's closing on a doubling in campsite occupancy over just six years, and that's just what we can measure. So Utah has these incredibly high rates of occupancy, which are actually closing on you know, 100% in the peak season in and near these famous national parks. Um, So there's just these really obvious impacts of that Mighty Five campaign and how that's driving what's happening on the ground. Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, I think that we tend to focus a lot on what BLM should be doing and what like NPS should be doing. And honestly, like they can only do so much. Um, If the state is sending millions and millions of people to these places, we can't expect the BLM to to do a, a great job managing them. And I think that also points to the importance of creating more of these protected areas, right? It's obvious that people love these places. And across the West, um, there's immense support for them. Um, a 2020, 
2021 poll out of Colorado College found that 84% of Westerners support creating new protected areas. And that's because people in these areas understand the importance of them and want more of them. They love these places and they know it's time for us to get out there and make sure that those places are protected for the future. Judy, this report from SUA focuses on human impacts. It mentions off-highway vehicles a couple times, but just walk us through the, the relative impacts uh, on these these landscapes when you're talking about managing for, say, mountain bikes versus managing for OHVs, more mechanized recreation. Is that just a like a multiplier in terms of the impacts on landscapes? Or are there, there are other things that BLM managers in particular need to, to take into account? Um, that's a really good question. Yes, it's definitely a multiplier. And, and we are being overrun by motorized use. The thing is, motorized use is, is a very visible impact. It's you know, the noise, the, just the destruction that motorized vehicles. The tire tracks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think, so our report focused, and we have a, SUA has a longstanding, you know, campaign addressing motorized vehicles and and roads. Um, But I think we have to really acknowledge that as human powered recreationists, we also have an impact. And the first, to solve a problem, we have to acknowledge it. And so our report and what we're, what we're trying to do is in no way an indictment of those who recreate on public lands. We're not saying not to recreate. Um, I recreate, we all recreate, we love it. Um, but we have to acknowledge that we're having an impact. And individually, we may not think we're having an impact, but when you get this huge influx of more and more and more visitors collectively, we are all having an impact. And um, so first we have to acknowledge it. And then we do have to work with the agencies to figure out how to manage it. And our report goes, it has a lot of really good management recommendations for the federal land management agencies. And the bottom line of the report, the, the, um, you know, the real key finding and management recommendation is that dispersion is not the solution. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that's what the management agencies are doing right now is they say, oh, this place is too crowded. Let's send them over here, create new trails, create new campsites. Um, and that is absolutely not going to work because you're going to push farther and farther and farther into the backcountry to the extent you don't have any more backcountry quiet areas protected for wildlife um, and you're impacting so many resources. Um, So, you know, our focus is really to work with the management agencies to protect these backcountry spaces for wildlife, for resources, for cultural resources and focus development of recreation experiences more in the front country. And so there's this front country and back country, and we're, we're really looking at um, what, what we call a zoning approach, where there's, you know, primitive and back country experiences and front country, which are closer to towns, closer to gateway communities. And the reason for this is what the science tells us is that 
the initial impact, especially in a very sensitive area like along the Colorado Plateau, the initial impact is the most damaging. The initial development is the most has the most impacts, does the most damage, and 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 it's kind of a, a curvilinear, I think that they call it. Um, so the impact rises really quickly, but then it kind of flattens out. So if you have places that already have trails, improving those places and making them more accessible to more people is going to have minimal impact versus putting a new entire trail development in a place that is currently relatively pristine. Increase capacity on the spots you already have recreation impacts on. Yeah. And let's face it, probably 95% of the people who do want to get out and recreate, um, that's where they, that's where they want to go. It's that, so, that, that curated national park-like experience. Yeah. And you, not even a national park-like experience, but you can get a lovely solitude experience in some of these front country areas, but they are already impacted. And so you're not going to impact, you're not going to go into the middle of bighorn sheep habitat or elk breeding habitat and create new trails that's going to push those species farther and farther away. You're going to, you need those buffer zones to really protect those species. Judy, I feel like you've basically answered this question, but what are your tips like for our listeners, if they want to go and camp around Moab or in Southern Utah in general, like what's the responsible way to do that? Yeah. Um, the responsible way to do that. Um, it's funny. I actually just did some social media posts about this for someone else yesterday. Um, and I guess there's three things to think about. One is to know where you're going. So do the research ahead of time, right? Know where you're going to go and know what's there. So learn about the cryptobiotic soils, learn about where you're going, what is sensitive and what the rules are, and then respect it when you're there. So if you can't find a camping spot, don't create a new one, right? Don't drive off the road and just create a new campsite or new parking spot, or don't hike off the trails into the cryptobiotic soils, especially here, the trails, there's so many user, what we call user created trails where someone says, oh, I want to go take a picture of that over there. And they just hike off the trail into the desert and across the soils and, um, that's really very, very disturbing, not only to the soils, but you're create, then someone else sees those footprints and they go there. And so you're creating more and more trails that's going to fragment habitat more, impact the soils and the vegetation. So really learn about the place you're going, respect the place you're going and clean up after yourself. Okay. Don't leave your human waste and toilet paper in the desert, it does not degrade and you don't want to be hiking along a trailer at a campsite and have toilet paper there. So bring resealable plastic bags, bring a wet, what's called a wag bag, something to clean up your waste because you may think that your waste isn't having an impact, but just think about the thousands and thousands and millions of people who are there and all of that waste. And you don't want to be hiking through that very impactive to soils and water quality and health, human health and safety. So really respect um, the place where you are. Mm. Yeah, there was a really interesting article in Outside Magazine, I think last week that 
um, talked about some new research on cat holes and burying your poop and basically finding that in heavily recreated areas, it just doesn't work at all. And the water is sheds are like full of E. coli. Um, so don't, yeah, get a wag bag. <laughs> Google wag bag and order it now. <laughs> you can get them at any store, at any, you know, outdoor store. And especially in the desert, it's so important because it just does not degrade. Uh, I feel an episode on the Rainbow Family Gathering in Colorado this summer oh, coming on here, but yeah. that's probably outside the scope <laughs> of this one right now. Okay, before we before we wrap up, I got to ask Tyler, you mentioned that part of your report was to sort of help people understand where to reserve campsites or when they won't be busy. Can you tell us some of the tips that you have based on what you found? Um, like what are the, what are, what's some news you can use from that report? Um, so news you can use a look at the report. Um, there's tons of interactives that you can check out and um, you can filter, you know, I'm in Utah and I want to look at reservation patterns on the weekends. Um, and see where in 2019, 2020 had the highest rates. Um, and it's often that, like I said, near these really popular areas, there's increased use. And that's true in the areas around them as well. But that also falls off fairly quickly. And there are places that you can find, um, you know, within a short drive of some of these really cool places that you can camp. And those are already in established campgrounds because these are reservable campgrounds managed by the agencies. Um, so I think that's, you know, it, it's heartening to hear, right? It's not just that, oh, we're having this negative impact on everything, but there are places where we can still get out, be in areas that are already impacted and be responsible stewards. And I think it's really important that people are doing that because um, at the same time as we're having these huge impacts, it's also incredible that so many people are getting out on the landscape and that's how people are going to develop their personal relationships to place and to land and that's how we create generations of people who care for lands and ecosystems who want to protect and steward our natural environment that that's what we need to create the future um, that's going to be sustainable for all of us um, and I think just what goes hand in hand with that is that we need to adequately fund those land management agencies so that they can do the work and create these spaces that Judy is talking about, and then making sure that people know where they are and that they can get to those places which are built to sustain this use. Um, so I, I think it's really this interconnected system, and we need to be working to put all of the different pieces in place. I think we're going to wrap it there. Tyler McIntosh, formerly with CWP, now at... CU Boulder, Judy Brower from Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. Thank you both. This was a, a fabulous and timely conversation. And I, I guess if there's one takeaway, it's uh, pack out your poop <laughs> and reserve a campsite. And don't, don't, don't bust the crust. <laughs> Thank you both. And here's some good news to finish off the show today. The Utah legislature has approved the Bears Ears land swap. The swap involves trading federal land inside the newly restored monument for federal land outside of the monument. And it was negotiated by Utah's School and Institutional Trust Lands Administration, which oversees millions of acres of state land in Utah. 
The trade was controversial among Utah lawmakers since it's seen as tacit acceptance of the monument's larger boundaries. But it's also a huge windfall for the state since the land inside the monument is of far less value than the land Utah will receive. The final deal also ups the amount of federal land Utah will acquire from 140,000 acres to 165,000. The feds threw in that extra acreage to sweeten the deal, and apparently it worked. Now, this isn't actually good news for everyone. A lot of land the state is set to receive is near Moab in Grand County, Utah. Rumor has it folks there are not super happy about this since the state can sell its land or lease it to developers, unlike the federal government. But given the Utah legislature's track record of screwing over Moab, it's unlikely the town's protests will alter the deal in any way. Well, that is it for our show today. If you have feedback, questions, concerns, favorite tips for getting that great campsite over the summer, send us an email, podcast at westernpriorities.org. You can find us both on Twitter as well. Until next time, I'm Aaron Weiss. And I'm Kate Gretzinger. Thanks to Tyler and Judy for joining us, and thank you for listening to The Landscape.